Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. Father Peter Stravinskis is editor of the Catholic Response and author of many books and hundreds of articles. In fact, uh, he's been with us before to weigh in on church matters. Uh, his recent article in Catholic World Report surveyed Catholic journalism over the decades, and I thought it might make for a worthy episode. Welcome, Father Stravinskis. Good to be with you, Mark. Uh, you know, one of the issues here, we haven't really talked about this before, but it is public discourse about the church, especially among journalists, journalists either who, who work inside the church or who are outsiders. Uh, and we'll get into that distinction a little bit, but you have many, many years of experience as a journalist. Uh, you talked about going way back to the 70s, I believe, in your article in Catholic World Report. How did your experience as a journalist begin? Well, I, I guess I'm what you might call an occasional writer in the same sense that Cardinal Newman was. Occasional meaning uh, not from time to time, but certain occasions uh, bring about <laughs> uh, an article. And uh, I really started writing when I was still a seminarian and uh, had some articles in the Trenton Diocesan newspaper and and then the Our Sunday Visitor and some other uh, uh, various outlets, and then started to doing some uh, homiletic writing for uh, an outlet in uh, Ottawa. And, and just with the passage of time, it kind of grew uh, very naturally. I should tell you that uh, when I was in fifth grade, Sister Regina Rose, uh, I think we had probably 78 kids in the class, um, with no discipline problems, by the way. Um, uh, but Sister Regina Rose said to my mother, I can tell you three things about Peter's future. He will be a priest, he will be a teacher, and he will be a writer. There we go. And, uh, and she called all three shots. Uh, I should also mention that Sister is now 106 years old. <laughs> and uh, when I spoke with her on the phone a couple of months ago, I called and asked for her. She, a voice came on and said, hello. And I said, uh, Sister Regina. She said, who is this? I said, one of your former students. And she said, Father Peter. <laughs> uh, so uh, she, she saw something there. And uh, uh, I, I do write with facility. Uh, I enjoy writing. And I see it as kind of a, another part of, uh, of teaching, uh, which I also thoroughly enjoy. And, and sometimes people say, well, you know, how does that fit in with, uh, with your primary 
vocation as a priest. And and both the teaching and the writing are, as a matter of fact, uh, avenues uh, by which my priestly vocation is expressed. And uh, I always say one of the, the nice things about the priesthood is you can change your job dozens of times, uh, but your vocation remains the same. And so, you know, I've been an editor, a publisher, uh, a professor, and, and, you know, dozens of other things over the years. Uh, but each and every one of those uh, positions that I have occupied is, is in some way uh, a living out of my primary vocation as a priest. How much of your writing work has been done as entering into a controversy or polemic, you know, feeling motivated to write for or against an issue, a, a conflict out there in the world? Uh, well, uh, I would guess pretty soon after I was ordained, that was in 1977, there was an effort afoot among certain Catholics uh, that we, we had to um, reclaim the territory for orthodoxy, that we had already had 10 years of, of massive confusion and dissent in the church uh, following uh, Humanae Vitae, and, uh, and it was time now to regroup. And it also coincided with the beginning of the pontificate of John Paul II, and with that, his decision to change apostolic delegates who eventually became nuncio, but to change the apostolic delegate who had wrought such havoc with the American hierarchy and uh, Jadot, and um, who was a Belgian. And when he came here, uh, people might find it hard to believe, but at Vatican II, the American hierarchy was arguably one of the most conservative hierarchies in the universal church at the time. And when Jadot came to the States, as apostolic delegate, and the principal job of a delegate or a nuncio was really to advise the Pope on uh, Episcopal appointments. Uh, it happened at the time when it was the beginning of bishops retiring generally at the age of 75. And so he walked into a situation where in a period of five or six years, he was able to be responsible for the appointments of probably 70% of the American hierarchy. And, uh, and those positions were almost uniformly filled with um, very, very problematic men. And, uh, and it took uh, two nuncios in a row after him, uh, Archbishop Pio Laghi and Archbishop Agostino Cacciavillan, a combination of 20 years to get the ship uh, back on track. And um, so at that same time, uh, Fran Meyer was the uh, then new editor of the National Catholic Register. And, uh, and his approach was, let's use uh, the Catholic media for promoting what is good, uh, rather than going after uh, the lunacy frontally with the idea always being that uh, truth has its own power. And, uh, and so he came up with the idea of doing various, various catechetical series, uh, simple uh, restatements of Catholic truth. 
And the first series that I did for him was on the, uh, on the sacraments, and then another on the commandments, another on the Beatitudes. And then we got ourselves to uh, 1985, the 20th anniversary of the close of Vatican II, and I did a 16-part series on the 16 documents of Vatican II. And each of these was a kind of a, a building block, if you will, in restating for the, the person in the pew what the truth of the Catholic faith uh, was, is, and always will be. So in that sense, it was, it was not polemical, but it was, but it was certainly engaging uh, a situation where these issues were, were being either totally ignored or contradicted. And so uh, that's, that began a whole process. And, uh, and then from that unfolded various book writing uh, projects. Uh, and, uh, and at the very same time, as you well know, my incredible devotion to Catholic schools. Uh, so all of these things were, were coalescing and in the mix. And I think that uh, it got us to, uh, to a rather good spot uh, by uh, by the, let's say, two-thirds point of the pontificate of John Paul, and then moved rather smoothly into uh, the transition with uh, Benedict XVI. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, you will find the two generations of, of priests that were formed in, the, in those 20 years um, are generally very proud to call themselves JP2 priests. Uh, you can't find... Uh, a left winger in in two generations of American priests. You say in your Catholic World Report piece that in the 1970s, by the late 70s, quote, uh, the church was quote tottering on the verge of heresy. Uh, was there a failure on the part of journalists at the time, either within the church or people covering the church? Was there a failure? on their part to raise the alarm about what was going on? Well, you know, our Lord has, has said that um, the children of this generation are always wiser than the children of light. Um, and, uh, and we've seen that in a variety of circumstances, politically as well, uh, that the revolutionaries always seem to, uh, well, they, they call the shots, it seems. And and it takes time to to catch up with what's going on. Uh, we think, for example, of the uh, uh, the whole debacle of Roe v. Wade, and the the real brilliance of the uh, of the bad people who presented this as being pro-choice. Uh, the language is engaging. Who's against choice? Huh? It took a long time for the other side of the aisle to come up with the expression pro-life and changed the entire conversation. Well, similarly within the church proper, um, you know, Vatican II was, was necessary. Pius XII envisioned calling a council. All the, all the plans were, were made during his pontificate for a council. Uh, and then he, in the last five years, he was very sick and, and so on. But truth be told, Although a council was needed, 
it couldn't have come at a worse time socio-politically. It uh, was the beginnings of all kinds of uh, dissent and upset and rebellion. And, and the church, although not of the world, she exists in the world. And, and so that entire uh, socio-political environment had a severe impact on, on the church. <clears throat> I was just uh, reading last night a biography of Mother Benedict, who was the uh, foundress of Regina Laudis Abbey, a great Benedictine uh, con- convent of nuns with Gregorian chant in, in Connecticut. And uh, I finished the chapter on the 50s, and then she's, the next chapter is the early 60s, before Vatican II. And she says, it became clear that a different kind of woman was entering religious life. And, and among other things, she said, the women coming to her in 1960, 62, 63, were not content to say, here's the package, uh, enter into it. They said, well, what's it all about? And I don't know if I want it that way. So these women who had goodwill, but at the same time uh, had imbibed a great deal of what was already in the cultural air. And, uh, and I think that was one of the difficulties is not perhaps assessing well enough what, what the, the situation really was in society. And, uh, and also there was an awful lot of um, kind of a Pollyanna-ish attitude that things are getting better all the time. Well, uh, growing up in the 60s, I can tell you, as a kid, I didn't think things were getting better. <laughs> uh, it was pretty clear to me that things were getting worse. But so I think those were all, you know, issues that people were were unprepared for. Uh, the, the hierarchy in this country, as I say, was 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 very traditional, and uh, and therefore was used to saying something, and uh, you know, please jump, and people would say how high, and. In the mid-60s, they were saying that, and people were priests and, and, and nuns and lay people not saying how high, but go to hell. <laughs> and, uh, and, and these men were uh, caught flat-footed, didn't know how to deal with that phenomenon of someone who wasn't simply going to obey. You know, you mentioned uh, how important, how, how much the accession, accession of John Paul II as Pope was how did that change public discourse, public talk, journalist, or or just public public speech making about the church? Uh, I think the first thing that John Paul did, and in this sense very similar to Ronald Reagan, he changed a mood. You can remember how Reagan made the L word a bad word, liberal. He's a liberal. <laughs> and in many ways, John Paul operated in the same way. John Paul never really engaged in frontal assaults. Uh, of course, I think he had learned an awful lot from the communists. And, you know, when, when the communists engaged in frontal assaults on the church, the church got stronger. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think he realized that the most important thing he could do is restate in new creative ways um, the parental teaching of the church, his whole approach to to the teaching of of sexuality. 
there's not a single change in in his teaching on matters of the sixth and ninth commandment, not a single change from the entire tradition. But the approach was entirely different. The packaging was different. And uh, same thing in terms of uh, uh, just uh, discipline in the church. He, he made it clear that he would support bishops. He wanted bishops that were, were courageous. And, and we had, now, let, let me not go too far afield here, but to say, uh, you know, he was not the greatest administrator, all right? <laughs> he was a teacher and he was an expert in humanity, but at times allowed things to go on that certainly I would not have allowed to go on. Uh, but, uh, and, you know, were all his choices of bishops perfect? No, of course not. How could any pope, you know, at the time there were 3,000 some bishops in the world, and uh, and today it's closer to 5,000. So, you know, who, just at a normal level, what CEO <laughs> uh, would be able to make choices about 5,000 uh, personnel? But but by and large, uh, and of course he had an engaging personality. Uh, I uh, I still get teary eyed when I, I I look at some of the old videos of of him with kids, uh, of him with seminarians, uh, an 80 year old man at World Youth Day not acting like a buffoon with kids, uh, but like a grandpa and, uh, and how teenagers and children, uh, just, he was a magnet for them without, without really trying, uh, just by virtue of his personality. Of course, he had spent his whole life in academia prior to becoming a bishop, even as a bishop continued, uh, to be a professor. Uh, and interestingly, when he was elected Pope, he still had a couple of doctoral dissertations that he was guiding. And so those, those leftovers could say, uh, my doctoral dissertation advisor was the Pope. <laughs> uh, so he always had, you know, uh, an understanding of young people. And as I always make the point, uh, those of us who are involved in education, you, you have a tendency to stay perennially young, uh, no matter how old you are chronologically, uh, because of the contact with the young, and uh, and so all of that was was part of uh, of of his uh, um, gift to the church. Uh, uh, he was the gift to the church, uh, and uh, and then what he was able to accomplish, and and just the the encyclicals, the apostolic exhortations, uh, somewhat long-winded. I I always joke that. John Paul had the policy, if you can say it in 5,000 words, why say it in five? And, uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but and also, he understood something. You know, uh, Pius XII defined the dogma of the assumption. <clears throat> the document is two pages long. Uh, John Paul, you know, there, there's no encyclical of his that's less than 100 pages. And what's the difference? Pius XII was still working in an era where it wasn't necessary, at least he didn't think it was, uh, to give detailed explanations for what you were doing. You did it. And John Paul realized that era was gone, long gone. Paul VI understood that painfully uh, by the response he got to Humani Vitae. So uh, whereas you were able to say in 1950 X and people would say, oh, okay, and we move on. 
now you had to define what X was even. <laughs> so it, it, it involves a whole different uh, procedure of, of teaching and, and writing and, and preaching and so forth. Yeah. If we turn to Pope Francis, you state in your absence that in, uh, well, I'll quote you, we, we, we see, quote, a refreshing absence of problematic statements or actions by Pope Francis over the past several months. Do you have a reading on that, on why that is? Now, <clears throat> you know, I have no entree to his mind or his heart, um, but it seems to me that we had that uh, disastrous uh, Amazon synod, and it was pretty much a foregone conclusion uh, of the left and even of many conservatives that in all likelihood he who certainly tilts left um, would give the green light to deaconesses and married priests and uh, and as we know in the final document that he issued uh, neither thing happened and and so it was a pleasant surprise for preservers of orthodoxy, and it was a, a shock to the system of the left who thought that they could count on him to, uh, to move the needle. And not only were they shocked, but they've actually turned out to be among his enemies now uh, because they feel betrayed by him. And, and in many, many places, uh, they have been as caustic in their remarks about him as conservatives were prior. <laughs> and, uh, and the one thing that people who know Francis have been able to say is he's a person who takes very seriously loyalty. And, uh, and I think he has interpreted their behavior as intensely disloyal and, uh, and is not playing on their side of the aisle anymore. Uh, so, you know, that, I, that's my interpretation of, of the pontifical silence. Uh, now, uh, who knows? That could change tomorrow. <laughs> um, but, but the silence has been very refreshing. <laughs> in, in your article also, you, you, you coin a term, or I guess a law. You call it, quote, the law of progressive polemic. What is that? Well, it's... It's obviously it's a, a political term to start with, but it applies wherever you have human beings. People start out with one thing they're complaining about, and then it moves to something else. We we see this, for example, when uh, spouses have a fight, and uh, and the uh, and the wife says to the husband, "Well, you're crazy," and the husband says, uh, "Well, you're crazy." As a matter of fact, your mother is crazy. Um, and you're, and it starts taking on a life of its own. <laughs> and, uh, and by the time you get to the end of the argument, you're light years away from where you started the whole thing. In that Catholic World Report article, I, I give the example of Martin Luther, who started out with a very legitimate complaint about an improper application of the practice of indulgences. Uh, he was not unique in saying that. Uh, Erasmus and others at the same time were saying the same thing. So he starts out with that, and then he moves from talking about the improper practice to 
uh, critiquing the doctrine of indulgences. And then from that to the whole concept of merit and, and uh, justification and all these other issues, uh, so that in a five-year period, he goes from being a reformer to, in point of fact, becoming the founder of, of an almost new religion. And, uh, and we, we see this happening very, very often. And I make the point in, in that article that Pope Francis has had that effect among, uh, on conservatives in the church said at times who started out with legitimate complaints about his confusion, uh, either his personal confusion or the confusion he causes with either writing or speaking, particularly off the cuff, uh, and have gone from those legitimate complaints to extrapolating on this to the point of saying, well, as a matter of fact, Benedict was a problem and John Paul was a problem and Paul VI was an even bigger problem. And then some now even saying, well, Pius XII opened the Pandora's box with his liturgical reforms. Uh, and so you keep going back and back and back and, and you know, eventually you're going to get to Peter. And then, of course, we know that he had problems. So it's, it's a dangerous thing. It's a, it's a, a very human dynamic but it's something that I think people have to check themselves on is, um, you know, where, where did I start this when, and how far have I come? It was the same thing, for example, in the sixties with <clears throat> women religious and, and the, and the uh, religious habit that I think most intelligent people agreed that, you know, many aspects of the religious habit were you know, problematic particularly in, in, in a modern culture. If you're driving a car, you, you can't look like Sally Fields with the uh, God's Geese headgear on. And, uh, and Pius XII, back in the 40s, had told them to modernize their habits. Vatican II said the same thing. And so we saw what happened initially was, okay, modification of the, of the headgear. And then, well, maybe, you know, take the skirt up a couple of inches from, from the, the floor and then step by step, to, you got to the point where there was nothing left. And, uh, and it happened very, very gradually in most instances. A couple of orders went crazy all at once. But for the most part, it started with, you know, modifying the veil, then shortening the skirt somewhat, then more than this, and then, then getting rid of the veil. And then get, and, and at, at one point, as one nun said to me, ex-nun, she said, I woke up one morning and I said, you ain't a nun anymore. Well, well, that was that. Yeah. And, uh, and it wasn't just that was happening with the habit. It was happening with the way they lived their lives in community, their attitude toward the church and the various apostolates that they worked in and so on. But that's why she said, I just decided I might as well get out because there was nothing left. So I think that, you know, these are, you know, those of us who, who are engaged in some kind of work of of reform, and you know we have that uh, critical line from from the history of the church, Ecclesia semper reformanda. The church is always in need of reform, but we have to be careful that we don't throw baby and bathwater out together. How have uh, Twitter and social media affected uh, discourse in or uh, about the church? Well, the way it's affected everything. Uh, number one. 
that someone who's barely literate uh, feels entitled uh, to pontificate on any and all issue, complete with misspelled words and bad grammar. And, uh, and so you have people, you know, Catholics, mostly laity, who, who may have even a basic grasp of the, of the faith, but start getting involved in issues about which they know very, very little, or they've read one article. Um, you know, Augustine says he's, he fears the man of one book. <laughs> so, you know, people say, well, I read an article that said, okay, well, all right. <laughs> That's one article. Or, you know, trying to, to present uh, an argument for a particular teaching of the church that may well have a very, very um, spotty history huh? that this person doesn't know. And so gives the impression that this is the absolute answer. And, uh, and in point of fact, often enough, it's not. Or just the, the nastiness that comes about from, from social media. You know, people, normal people anyway, are generally much more careful in a face-to-face -face conversation than they are with anonymous tweets. I, I, I've, I've told my students over the years, do not say anything online about someone that you would not say in the presence of that person. Yeah, uh, and, and also to be careful that um, you, you weigh what you write and you wait I, be, long before email and all of that stuff. I always had a policy if I had a difficult issue to address in a letter, I would write the letter and let it sit for 24 hours and then come back to it and say, okay, well, yeah, I still feel the same way about this, so it's going to go out. Or I would often enough say, hmm, Boy, it's a good thing I'm looking at that again. I, you know, that's either that's not the right way to put it, or I'm putting gas on the fire. And but all of this instantaneous communication has brought about uh, arrogance, uncivility. Uh, I mean, it's just a, a very, very sad development. And it, it, you know, there are obviously very good, important things that this that social communications has brought about, but at the same time, there are a heck of a lot of problems. And particularly when you're dealing with uh, people that you identified in your book title as the dumbest generation, uh, that really is a volatile combination. <laughs> Final word, uh, Father Stravinskis, what advice would you give to young people endeavoring to write about the church? Well, uh, first of all, make sure you know your faith. And, and not simply one aspect of it, but get a broad exposure to it. Know the catechism of the Catholic Church very well. Know the scriptures. Uh, know the history of the church. And, uh, and then make sure that whatever you're going to do is an outgrowth of your love for both Christ and his church. Uh, and if all of that's in place, then go, go for the goal. And... Uh, I, and I think I see a number of young people, particularly graduates of the past 20 years from some of the, the authentically Catholic colleges, uh, who are making a, a real contribution to, to the life of the church, uh, because they have all of those things in, in play. Father Peter Stravinskis, thank you for joining us. Pleasure as usual. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, 
and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.